You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. edition of the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball as we hit the middle of the month of august tyler mon sam dykstra benjamin hill fresh off the road back from the state of iowa gents what is going on how are you oh yeah <laughs> this is uh ben's biz sitting uh with sam dykstra to my left and as if sam dykstra and i have not spent enough time with one another uh over the last several days we're talking here on uh late thursday morning and um we were in a car together along with Kelsey Hennigan um, on Sunday morning and all of Sunday, all of Monday, Field of Dreams game Tuesday, uh, drive back to Chicago yesterday, flight back home. Sham, uh, Sham and I, Sam and I even uh, split a car ride from the airport all the way up <laughs> um, back to Brooklyn last night. So it has been a whirlwind, but uh, I think we're still processing, but um, really you it's hard to imagine four days that were more eventful, action-packed, and uh, certainly I, I would go as far to say one of the highlights of my career. I mean, we know how long and illustrious my career has been, but it's re- it's really it's really up there. I mean, I think the, the main thing talking, that's good. Yeah, I was going to say the main thing that everybody should take away from this is that somehow we don't hate each other. Uh, we bonded over you know radio station listens and, and cruising through. States like Indiana and uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania and um, hitting up a bunch of stops. And we'll get into that in a second. But, you know, we've been working together for a while now, dating back to when I started in March 2012 and Kelsey a little bit after that. And you start to think, okay, what is it going to be like when all three of us are in the car together and spending every second together for a while? And somehow we survived. I I shouldn't say somehow, you know, uh, as we expected, we survived. And uh, yeah, very, very fun trip, very rewarding trip. Um, hopefully it's, you know, I don't know if it's reproducible. I don't know if there's ever going to be another chance to do something like this. Would love for that to happen. Would love field of dream style games to become a thing on the minor league side, as well as the major league side. Uh, but yeah, pretty, pretty happy that it happened. Uh, and you know, like we said, hopefully it's a blueprint moving forward. Well, we welcome you into this latest edition of the show. Before the show, you can get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. We've gotten so many cool emails over the last couple of months. And, uh, you know, people who I know, I've said like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this email in the next episode and then completely space it. But um, just be aware that if you have emailed in, uh, we greatly appreciate you listening and all the support. Um, and, uh, yeah, send us your your questions, your thoughts, your comments. Um, we are kind of turning the corner toward the stretch run here in the minor league baseball season, but we are out of trade deadline season. We're ahead of really the, the playoff push. Uh, and this was the biggest event, uh, in the minor leagues this year. And so we're going to talk a lot about the, the minor league field of dreams game today with the Cedar Rapids colonels and the quad cities, river bandits donning throwback identities as the, uh, the bunnies and the blue socks and, uh, being able to play on a, you know, a national TV stage on MLB network and play in front of, I think 7,000 fans, 7,500 fans. Is that correct on the, the crowd size? Yeah. 7,500 thereabouts. Pretty awesome. And uh, and you guys getting a chance to go out there. It was the first time at the Field of Dreams for all of you. Ben, had you been there before? 
No, I'd never been there before. And uh, yeah, so great to make it to Dyersville. I mean, it's one of those things where it's a small town. So hadn't been in that region very much. And, you know, this gives you the opportunity to go to a region you haven't uh, been to often. Uh, we we stayed in uh, Dubuque, would have liked to explore there more a little bit more, but it was such a whirlwind. That was pretty much just where we laid our heads at night. But yeah, I'd never been there. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the road trip first. Tell us about getting out there. I know you know you take turns driving. You're cramped in a car with uh, with two coworkers. There's uh, enough stress that goes into road tripping with people that you know very well, but with people you've never road tripped with before. Uh, what was a what was a trip like? Let's hear all the gritty details. Uh, gritty details. I, I don't know if we're going to get into those necessarily. What stays on the, what happened on the road stays on the road. Not there that many. Um, but yeah, I mean, we got the car at 7 a.m. on Sunday because we wanted to get an early start. Uh, and 7 a.m. for college students and ball riders is a very, very early start, I will say. Uh, but, you know, if we got it at LaGuardia Airport, which meant we were right next to City Field. One just went by there real quick just to say we started in a baseball place. And then, you know, we were on the road to baseball places after that. Every stop we made had some sort of baseball relevance, starting in Hoboken with uh, Elysian Field, which is, you know, according to a plaque there where the first match game was ever played with baseball um, between Hoboken and, and New York. Uh, we went to Jersey city after that, saw the Jackie Robinson statue where he made his regular se- season debut in the Dodgers system uh, with Montreal. When Montreal played Jersey city uh, in his first game from there to Reading home of the fight and fills. We, we got to see their stadium a little bit uh, in Eastern Pennsylvania, moving across to Western Pennsylvania stopped in Pittsburgh uh, at the alma mater of Ben's biz at Pitt. They had Forbes Field, and that really threw you back then. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I, I graduated uh, 21 years ago somehow. I always love visiting Pittsburgh, and uh, to go in this context was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, Forbes Field, it's just like the remnants of the wall there right now on the Pitt campus, um, and but they still have you know the dimensions. It was a very uh, spacious ballpark. I believe there's you know 437 in one corner, and even a little bit more than that in one of the others. Um, there's a building across the street. It was called Forbes Quad when I attended, which is a good name, Forbes Quad. It was built basically where the ballpark was. Now it's Wesley W. Posvar Hall, who I assume. He's a great guy, and I'm sure a donor too. I was going to say a rich person, <laughs> a rich who gave person, a lot of yeah. money. Yeah. Uh, but in that building, which we did not have access to, uh, home plate is embedded uh, under plexiglass. Uh, so it was great to be in Pittsburgh. I have so many memories there. Sam and Kelsey had to indulge me, as I pointed out, mostly like, "Whoa, was this? This wasn't there, or this used to be this, or this has changed so much, or this was better when I was there." Uh, but memories came flooding back, and then we drove from there to uh, PNC Park. The original plan was to uh, take a walk across the Roberto Clemente Bridge, uh, but that was closed under construction. But we did uh, hit the ballpark, uh, see the Clemente statues, and a uh, beautiful, beautiful day in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania um, made me feel like, ah, maybe I'll just move back to Pittsburgh. Man, I love Pittsburgh. But then I started to think of Pittsburgh in November and December and January and February and March. And maybe I don't want to, but maybe I do. But it was it was really, really great to be there. And yeah, the, the previous stop in Reading as well, because I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, not too far from there. So uh, I had a lot of reference points and memories, uh, you know, all throughout, especially the Pennsylvania portion of the trip, but we just had to keep moving. And from Pittsburgh, we went to Akron, Akron Canal yeah. Park, yeah, home of the rubber ducks. And the sun was going down. We took a like a full lap 
around uh, the ballpark, not in the ballpark, but we did a little canal walk along the ballpark and mm-hmm. uh, that was excellent. Got a uh, late dinner at a uh, greasy spoon diner in East Akron. I'm forgetting the name, but you know, kind of place you can get a you know, sirloin for fi- a five ounce sirloin hash browns. You know, I was all about it. I think uh, that was one of those things. It was a little dirty. There were too many flies around, but I think that night sitting in that diner, thinking about all the places we've been is to me, a really good memory. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those places you don't ask too many questions, but um, that Akron stop basically set up, you know, three minor league stops in a row for us. We went from Akron to Toledo, stayed the night in Toledo, went to the home of the Mud Hens early Monday morning. Uh, and then on from there, went to Fort Wayne, which we saw another plaque uh, talking about the first professional baseball game um, that allegedly took place in Fort Wayne. But we also got a ballpark tour at the home of the Tin Caps uh, with friend of the show, John Nolan, broadcaster for Fort Wayne, who happened to still be in town, even though the team was traveling the next day. It was great to see John. Uh, he pointed out many different things about Fort Wayne baseball and the history of it and the way the Tin Caps are trying to honor that. Obviously, that was big theme of this tour was baseball history and hitting up as much as we could. Um, so that was our Indiana stop moving up further to the West. We went through Chicago kind of waved at uh guaranteed rate field uh, because we were stuck in Chicago traffic. It was raining. We couldn't really stop by to see it, but we did pass by it going through Chicago, the home of the white Sox uh, went to the home of the rock for peaches, which is back in the news because um, a league of their own is shortly coming to amazon as a television show you all know the movie i'm sure um, but really excited to watch that tv show helmed by abby jacobson uh, a comedian who i've liked for a very long time now um kind of cool to see her, her put her spin on a league of their own so we got to check in at the home of the peaches that was our illinois stop and from there it was straight on to dyersville uh taking route 20 west which is a great route i highly recommend it if you ever get the chance drive from Rockford to Dyersville and maybe even beyond. We didn't go further West than that, but route 20 is a delightful drive through corn, through some historic places. Um, well, just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful landscape beautiful scenery, and scenery. Yeah. If you're conjuring a stereotype in your mind of what, you know, beautiful rolling uh, Iowa cornfields look like uh, going down that road Illinois too. and Illinois. Yeah. Plenty in Illinois before we even got there. Uh, it was just gorgeous uh, throughout. And um you know, going back to Fort Wayne real quick. Yeah, that was 1871. We went to this little park in this little residential neighborhood, but that's where the first professional league game apparently took place in 1871. So the first time there was a league formed, all professionals, the first game uh, took place, the Fort Wayne Kikiangas, I believe mm-hmm. was that was. And uh, when we were in Hoboken, that was the first match game, I guess. So it wasn't professional. It wasn't professional. Yeah. It was the first organized game in 1846. So the fact that we hit those two places... Uh, along the way was great but yes uh, rolling into Iowa uh, with the sun going down beautiful sunset made an unscheduled stop in uh, Galena Illinois prior to that home of uh, Ulysses S. Grant saw his uh, his mansion and uh, what a beautiful town that was and uh, you know it was still some light out but the sun was really going down and we pulled into the field of dreams uh, what about eight o'clock eight o'clock yeah right as the sun was going down and uh, we had a catch we had a, we did we, we played catch. Come on now, we right. played catch. Either I'm, I'm not going to go by Kevin Costner's rules. Tyler, where do you stand on that? By the way, play catch. Thank you. Yeah, you are a true red blooded American. Yeah, well, and human I'm, human being, not just American. I'm sure. That, I actually you know, don't think that I had ever heard the phrase "have a catch" before that movie, and I don't know if until I started working in baseball, I don't think I had ever heard anybody use it like non ironically. 
uh, until then. But it's very much like when when there are polls done about it, it's very much like a. You know, it's it's localized to this spot, um, you know, out east. I don't remember if it's uh, the Philly area or somewhere, you know, somewhere on the East Coast. But it's I know a, a very regional thing, which I'm always fascinated by. But, yeah, I had never heard of before the movie. Yeah. Then I don't think we ever talked about spent so many. T- where did you land on it? Have. You are half. See, there yeah. we go. I think we found out exactly where it's localized. To. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Either to, way, to Ben Hill, to Ben Hill, <laughs> wherever Ben yeah. is, is where the Have a Catch region is. Spreading Which, the he could be in uh, the town named Benjamin Hill in Mexico. Which uh, I found while exploring something on a map, and I sent all of you guys a few weeks ago. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. We just know that Ben is huge in uh, in the state of Sonora. Um, but you get there. Um, you get a chance to to check out the first minor league game ever, the Field of Dreams. Uh, it's such a uh, standard that was set so highly last year that I'm not sure if anything can ever surpass. White Sox Yankees in in last year's debut edition of the Field of Dreams game. But, you know, we've seen it makes me think of the NHL Uh, when the NHL kicked off the Winter Classic in the stadium series and all that. You kind of thought, well, this will never be as cool as it was, you know, that first time with I think it was the the Penguins and the Sabres. Uh, Maybe I might be remembering that incorrectly, but, you know, the snow was falling and it's beautiful and perfect, uh, amazing outdoor game. Um, But each successive edition has its own charm and its own cool thing. Uh, the we're recording this on Thursday the 11th. The major league game is tonight. Cubs Reds um, back at the at the Field of Dreams. For you guys getting a chance to see the first minor league game there, take us through that experience. Yeah, I mean, you, when you talk about what makes this one special, because it is so top uh, difficult to top last year's Yankees White Sox game that ended on a Tim Anderson walk off homer, had theatrics, had fireworks, had Tim Anderson dancing as he's running home. It, it was such a perfect moment and iconic cinematic moment for a place that literally used to be a, a film set. You wonder how that's going to get topped. But I think the way I don't say I won't say this necessarily top that, but just being a minor league experience was huge for us to experience. Um, just seeing Midwest League ball, which is a high A league. These are guys who are three stops away from the majors. A lot of these guys don't expect at least yet to get this type of big league experience, to be put on national television, to be put under these big bright lights, to play in front of 7,500 people like this on a random Tuesday night. Um, All of them that we talked to, everybody I saw, all the players, all the coaches were coming in with these eyes like saucers, just trying to take in this whole experience and what it's like. Um, You know, some people were more excited, I think, to play on the movie set than others. Some had to watch the movie, figure out why it was special. Others were just like, hey, this is, you know, we're, we're taken out of our normal routine, which is huge in the the long uh, grind of a season to have something special in early August, right before you're about to hit the stretch run was, I think, really cool. But that that's my big takeaway is just going to this game, knowing that pretty much everybody who was there, at least as a fan, was pretty wrapped up in the minor league experience. We saw a lot of Colonel's, you know, gear, people walking around. We saw other random minor league logos as people were we're going around obviously some quad city stuff as well a lot of royals specific stuff so it felt like royals fans were trying to go to quad cities to see the future of the organization but um you know if, if you look at last year's white Sox yankees game and how big of a production it was how 
big of a show, capital S it was, this felt much more homey and, and almost fitting of the setting to have these minor league teams playing, like you said, Tyler, as the Bunnies and the Blue Sox. Um, it, it was all just very fitting for the, for the atmosphere, I think. Yeah, and the game itself was, I don't want to quite say an afterthought. It's certainly not an afterthought for the players, but you know, Davenport, a.k.a. Quad Cities, took an early lead and never really looked back, cruised to a 7-2 win. But I don't think there was really any sense of pressure I'm sure there's pressure to play in this game for the players, but I don't think there's any sense of pressure in terms of like, how can this live up to last year's major league game? I think this was a standalone event that just everyone was happy for it to exist. One to have a, another game played at this field, a more affordable option uh, for a lot of people to see baseball at this field uh, without paying the major league prices. So I think it existed kind of, you know, as, as its own reference point going forward, but th- I don't think it was overly burdened by uh, the spectacular game of last year at the MLB level. Uh, I mean, tonight's game between uh, the Cubs and the Reds might, you know, suffer from those lofty expectations from last year. But I, I think on the minor leagues, it was a completely different level. Uh, you know, we got there about noon for a six o'clock game. It was a very long day. I can feel my face uh, peeling right now because I neglected to put sunburn on it. Um, sunscreen on it. You got sunscreen. you put sunburn Oh wait, wait, it. yeah, I did I did not neglect to put sunburn on it. Yes. Thank you, Sam. Um but for me one of the highlights uh, of the game of the afternoon was, you know, the gates opened at 3 and around, you know, times a blur. But around, you know, 4:30 I went, you know, from the ballpark itself which is located beyond the movie site, and you can actually take a path from the cornfield from the movie site field to the ballpark. Um but I went to the movie site gates had opened there were fans mingling everywhere and uh like sam said there were a lot of minor league fans there uh, a lot of minor league fans turned out i kind of had a sense of that just based on how many people on twitter in the weeks leading up to the game asked me if i would be there or told me they would be there um, but it was great wandering around and just talking to people um you know who recognize me i don't mean just that in like a you know, ego boost way, although it does boost my ego, but just realizing that this is, you know, these are minor league people, uh, so many of them. And that was a really exciting aspect of it, uh, talking to so many people um, who were there, not just because they're baseball fans, but because they're specifically minor league baseball fans. And uh, on Twitter, I have several videos of just people I met and talked to just saying who they were and why they were there. Um, you know, part of a lot of coverage throughout the day, including a story I'll get to work on shortly. Um, you know, when I was mingling after the gates opened, you know, there was a bunch of guys uh, wearing uh, 1919 Black Sox uniforms. And I'd seen them earlier in the day. And I went up to them just kind of like, hey, do you do interviews in character or what's going on? Because I thought it might be a funny video or something like that. Turns out there's a whole story with these guys. They are the ghost players. And um, the story is, and I'm going to you know transcribe some interviews and get the details a little more specific shortly. But in the early 90s, sh- shortly after the movie came out, Field of Dreams, you know, people started to visit the site and a local farmer named Keith Ray, who lived, as I was told, you know, just down the road, um, he got it in his head to get a base, get a put on a baseball uniform. You know, he and his friends played, you know, you know, semi-pro and that kind of thing. Uh, he got a little group together. They all put on like period baseball uniforms and emerged from the cornfield unscheduled. So the people who were just happening to visit were like, whoa, like the ghosts are coming out of the cornfield. There were kids there who literally thought these were ghosts. Word spread of that. More people showed up the next week. 
And they became this thing like, oh, we got to keep showing up. One thing leads to another. They develop a comedy routine and act an old time baseball act, uh, get partnered with like military organizations, USO style, uh, travel all over the globe as the ghost players doing this. And these are just local guys in Dyersville, Iowa, who took it upon themselves to put on these uniforms and emerge from the cornfield just because they thought it was a fun thing to do. And one of them said to me, you know, they didn't not really bragging, but saying the reason this is what it is now, I think a lot of it is because of, you know, that because of the culture they helped create around the movie site, you know, three decades ago of, uh, you know, really going above and beyond uh, to, to create that mystique and have baseball players emerging from the cornfield. And they're still going strong, kind of a multi-generational thing, you know, recruiting more ghost players, uh, keeping the uh, performances going. And uh, I talked to Marv Myers, one of the uh, old time ghost players and uh, really funny guy, kind of self-deprecating sense of humor, but he was just smiling and shaking his head being like, I can't believe, you know, all of us can't believe that, you know, what, what their friend Keith started three decades ago is this today and, and all the performances and memories and literally global travel has happened uh, since then, just a bunch of local guys. And I think that's indicative too of, I think the locals from who I talked to largely embrace the event, you know, as we're driving and we just see very rural area, lots of farmland. It's easy to think like, uh, Man, it must be annoying to have all these people kind of invade the town. But in terms of, you know, the money they bring the, to the area, the opportunities they bring to business, I got the sense that it's largely looked on as a good thing. Talking to Marv, he said, yeah, I think if you talk to people, it would be split fairly evenly one way or the other. But, uh, hey, it's a it's a runaway train now. <laughs> and uh, uh, But I think it is on the whole a positive thing. But clearly different people are going to have different opinions. And that's valid. And Tyler, you've been to the Field of Dreams with your father, which I'm I'm very jealous of. I, I hope to make it someday with my own dad. But what is it like there on a non-game day, essentially? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, um, you know, it's obviously – and I was just there last year after the uh, the first big league game there. So I think I was kind of there in the – in the haze of the success of that event. Um, and it's going to be changing a lot more. I mean, if, if you had gone there, you know, even two years ago or five years ago or 20 years ago, um, how different it would be. Uh, I can't really imagine there, uh, is now a plan that appears to be coming to fruition. Frank Thomas kind of let the cat out of the bag that there is going to be a big baseball and softball complex, uh, for youth tournaments and all that type of stuff built, uh, on the grounds at the field of dreams, um, which is really cool, but obviously it changes it. It changes it from, you know, Route 66, the uh, the cool commuters um, road to Route 66, a, a tourist destination. Um, and, you know, that's the way things sort of evolve in, in society a lot. But it was it was amazing being there, you know, getting a chance to take the tour and be inside the house and, um, you know, learn uh, exactly what it took to get the uh, the movie made. And, you know, the fact that the the original field actually, if I remember this correctly, was on two different landowners land. Uh, the the family that owned the farmhouse, they owned up until about the middle of, you know, center field to the left field foul line. Uh, and then the land actually belonged to somebody else. And I think they essentially operated it as basically like a co-op for a while uh, before it was consolidated into, um, you know, one uh, ownership. But it's it's awesome. You know, it's people who make a pilgrimage because they love something like that. Dyersville is not an easy place to get to. Uh, and it's something that you very much have to make part of your plan to go see. It's not as though you're, well, we're on the road to, 
you know, Des Moines from Chicago and we just happen to, you know, drive by the field of dreams on the interstate. That's not really how it works. Um, so, you know, you're there with like-minded people and, um, and yeah, it's cool. And it is something very special to, to share with your family and whether it's fathers and sons or mothers and sons or daughters and fathers, uh, or daughters and mothers, you know, all, all combinations are very cool and you can see what it means to people when they're there and when they get a chance to see it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was the first time that my dad and I played catch, uh, probably since I was like in high school. So it was, uh, it was really cool. It's a, it's a very cool place. And if you get a chance to go, um, obviously it's, it's something that is changing and evolving, but it'll still, I think always have some of that soul of what it was. Um, you know, the movie set and the, and the house, I think are the two things that people go to see anyway. And the cool thing about being at the movie set and you guys will attest to this, you can't really see the big league stadium, you can see the light standards, but you can't see anything else. So they did a good job in keeping the feel of the movie set field and the house um, very much uh, kind of insulated from that. And uh, it's a pretty amazing place. It really is. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. It, it did feel like for us, especially when we got there at night, you know, the sun was setting and it was very idyllic in one way. Uh, and the lights were on in the major league stadium, but it felt removed. It felt like that thing off in the distance. Um, whereas, you know, playing catch on the main field, the movie set, uh, felt magical. And we, we got to play catch in the, the right field corner, which is especially removed because of the fields out, you know, out towards left. So, um, yeah, I, I would be interested in going back in a day where, where it's not all the hoopla. It is much more calm and, um, you know, everybody who is there, like you said, Tyler, is like-minded people, people seeking it out, like the James Earl Jones speech, people who are just driving and will uh, want to be there just to be there because something inside them makes it feel special. Uh, but this was a really cool event to, to get so many people out that way. And again, just to celebrate minor league baseball in this way, in a way that we haven't done before. It um, is so. very cool to have had that for the minor leagues. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's the the type of thing that, I my hope, and this is just speaking from a, a personal standpoint, my hope is that this um, expands to, you know, old Negro League stadiums. You know, we've had the, the Rickwood Classic in many years um, in, in Alabama where, uh, you know, I believe that's still the oldest functioning um, stadium in use for baseball uh, in America. And, you know, Anglefield in Chattanooga and um, Hamtrunk Stadium in, in the Detroit area you know, those types of places or, um, you know, the ballparks where Jackie Robinson played in, in New Jersey coming up or, uh, you know, all of the the places where you can trace baseball roots. I think it would be incredible to continue to bring the game um, to those places and to honor, you know, no sport is obsessed with or honors its history the way baseball does. And there are so many different venues that can be brought to life uh, using this concept. And um, I think that'd be really, really cool to see that continue to evolve. Yeah. I mean, just to wrap this all up, if there was a theme of this trip, and I've written about this a little bit, uh, both in a journal and in a newsletter, but, you know, we talked about our road trip before and hitting up all these historic spots and, and some minor league spots and whatever. And I think there's this gravitational pull towards Dyersville, Iowa, right? Saying like, oh, this is a celebration of the history of the game and and all that stuff. But history is in everybody's backyard when it comes to baseball. Like there is something around you, no matter where you are, that dates back decades, maybe even centuries um, about this game, because this game touches all four corners of this country. And as we know, it touches everywhere internationally as well. 
Um, so it's great that there's this pull right now towards Dyersville and, and it gets that ball rolling. But like you said, Tyler, even, uh, you know, the quad cities leadoff batter, Tyler Tolbert brought up Rickwood and having played there and how that kind of gave him an idea of what Dyersville would be like. Um, there are so many other places in minor league towns in major league towns and small towns that don't have professional baseball right now that are historic. Uh, and that could serve as a venue for this moving forward. So hopefully this is just the start. So um, we move on to discuss some other baseball-related things. Ben has a story that is up on the site right now, uh, one of the more unique uh, avenues to travel to being a, a fiction writer, but a Wichita fan did just that, utilizing some experience working at the home of the wind surge to craft a romance novel. Ben, tell us about this. Yeah, Cindy Amos, uh, who has written 45 romance novels, um, she's like an, an, an ecologist by trade, you know, works on the land, uh, environmental consulting, all that kind of stuff. But she has written 45 romance novels. And last year, 2021, was the inaugural season of the Wichita Wind Surge. And she worked at the ballpark as a fan host, essentially meaning an usher. Uh, she's stationed at like the Dillon's party picnic area down the third baseline. And uh, so she started working and started observing what she called the, quote, game within the game, meaning how the team operates, the interactions between the fans, all the little fires that need to be put out throughout uh, the course of any given, you know, minor league baseball game. So she has written a romance novel, a novella, essentially, entitled Home Run Hunter, uh, which takes place entirely at Riverfront Stadium. The team is called the Wind Splurge instead of the Wind Surge, and they play other thinly veiled Texas League entities such as the Springfield Redbirds and the uh, Tulsa Thrillers. But it is very, very based on working every day at a minor league ballpark. It tracks a romance between a member of the promo team and an intern. Uh, you know, mascot fruit races play a role. Dippin' Dots plays a role. Uh, you know, their knuckles touching um, while pulling tarp, you know, is a way to amp the t- tension. You know, very, very minor league. And uh, and it's very chaste as a romance novel. It takes place entirely as the ballpark. Uh, there's no, like, steamy, you know, illicit scenes. Not that I'm against that in a novel, but it's, you know, it's not that kind of book. It's Everybody's uh, only reaching first base is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. <laughs> so it, uh, it it's fun. It's a fun book to read. And um, so I, I had to write a story about that. And also the author, Cindy Amos, you know, based a lot of the characters around actual people, um, if not their personalities, at least their role in the ballpark. And so it's been a fun guessing game among the Windsurge staff to be like, oh, that's me. You know, I know Bob, Bob Moulet, who's like the VP of fan experience, uh, pretty much the boss in Wichita on a day-to-day level these days, you know, in the book, he's like, oh yeah, I'm Brent. You know, it's that kind of thing throughout. And, uh, the, uh, protagonist, the male protagonist, uh, Gage Landers in the book, uh, is very much based on a uh, intern last season, uh, Jacob Cook, I believe his name is, who is now working for the team full time. And I talked to him, and he was like, "Yeah, man, this is hilarious." <laughs> like, um, you know, I got to be uh, kind of the stand-in for the lead in, the, in a romance novel. Uh, you know, how often does that happen? I just made sure she gave me a signed copy of the book, so people will believe me when I tell them that. So, very quirky, original, unique uh, minor league story. Check it out on milb.com. Uh, 
I was going to say, or wherever fine minor league ball, uh, baseball <laughs> articles are sold. But no, just MILB.com, uh, MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. Uh, yeah, that was the fun one. And I still got much more to come from Tulsa, Wichita, Oklahoma City, ballpark guides from other places. I'm actually going to be home for a couple weeks now uh, trying to sort of dig myself out from this massive backlog because it's been a heck of a five or six week stretch uh, culminating climaxing i suppose and with uh this recent trip to iowa but uh i'm glad to be back home for a little bit all right guys we're headed back to iowa for our interview segment give us a preview of what's coming up yeah so iowa native matt mullenbach pitched one inning for cedar rapids that might not sound like much we don't normally talk about relievers when we talk about prospects but mullenbach is a iowa native and iowa native urbandale uh, urbandale Iowa, to be specific, as Ben just said. And uh, so it would seem pretty cool that he got to pitch in his home state with Cedar Rapids. But, and I won't spoil it, he has a specific tie to Dyersville itself. Um, So our own Kelsey Hennigan caught up with him after the game on Tuesday and talked to him uh, for this interview you guys are just about to hear right now. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I am Kelsey Hennigan, and I'm here with Matt Mullenbach, who is from Iowa, born here, um, and obviously got to play in the Field of Dreams game. So first of all, just what was today like for you? Uh, It was just crazy. I mean, family was here, uh, just seeing all the sights, and then actually pitching in the game was just absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. And then for those who don't know, what is your connection to Iowa and Dyersville? Uh, I was uh, just grew up in Iowa, uh, just like 15 minutes outside Des Moines. And then the connection to Dyersville is my parents got engaged in Dyersville. So, I mean... <laughs> That's pretty cool. Were they yeah. just fans of... Uh, so my dad worked in Chicago and my mom taught at a school in a town nearby so on the weekends he would drive over and he was actually playing in like a kind of like a beer league baseball and uh, so he proposed to her when he came over one weekend and that's the story behind that. <laughs> nice. Have yeah. you come here a lot then as a kid? or? Uh, this is my first time ever oh, wow. coming to Dyersville so it's pretty cool. I'm sure your parents told you a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. What did um, they tell you about it? I mean, they just, like, before coming here, they just told me I had to watch the movie and just kind of, like, soak everything up because they said it's beautiful here. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's meant a lot to them to have their story continue to now have you pitch here. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're pretty excited to come back up here because mm-hmm. growing up, we really never came up to this part of Iowa, so I think this is the first time they've been back here since the proposal, I think. Oh, wow, that's pretty yeah. special. Mm-hmm. What do you think it means to Iowa to have this game here, to have all the you know the baseball world coming here? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess, like, 
through my baseball career, just like being from Iowa, that everyone just always asks about the field of dreams. Yeah. So I think having the game here just kind of puts baseball and Iowa on the map a little more. Yeah, and what does it mean to have now a minor league game, you know, since this is kind of more of a grassroots minor league type mm -hmm. setting in general? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it should happen every year. I mean, it's a really cool experience and just like we don't really play on venues like this very much. So to get the opportunity to do that, it's really special. So I know you knew that it was a possibility you could pitch today, but once your name was called in the bullpen, what were you starting to think? Uh, I mean, nothing really different than any other game, but just like once I started going, I was like, oh, it's actually happening. And then once I got out there, just kind of tried to block out all the thoughts that I was having. And, yeah. yeah. Was that jog out there to the mound a little different than normal though? Yeah, um, I mean, tried to take it in on the jog in just like all the scenery but uh, I mean just tried to focus on actually pitching and once I was done that's when I kind of took in all the scenery. Yeah and your pitching did go pretty well with that mm -hmm. one scoreless inning what was working for you? Uh, I mean I got some weak contact and then uh, fell behind a couple guys and just kind of had to battle back into the count and then got the results I wanted. And then when you were able, like you said, to soak it in after the game, what were those thoughts or emotions? Uh, I mean, just like sitting in the dugout and looking out at the scoreboard and then just seeing corn brought for like as far as you can see. I mean, this place is just beautiful. So, I mean, and then just hearing every, all the teammates just saying like, didn't know Iowa was like this. And so, I mean, it was really cool. Yeah, what will you take away most? What will be your biggest memory from tonight? Uh, probably just actually pitching at this field, knowing kind of history around Dyersville, and then just the movie being shot here, and then coming to this beautiful field and experiencing everything has been really nice. Um, do you think that pitching tonight helps you prepare for like uh, you know the next level and maybe one day the majors because you do have the national yeah. television? Um, I mean, definitely, just is a different setting. So I mean, when you get that under your belt, it's never a bad thing. And then just all the other things that went into today was like just a different experience as well. So I mean, I think definitely helps if you keep moving up. So those you know, kids who are watching on TV or maybe some people who got to come from out of town, what do you want them to know about Iowa baseball? Uh, I mean, I think Iowa baseball is just as good as any other state. It's a little different because we play high school baseball in the summer, so not a lot of kids like go on the travel teams, and so not a lot of people know about Iowa baseball, so I think just seeing the environment here like people love the game here and I mean, yeah. <laughs> is there anything else you want to add I don't know. all right thank you for taking yeah, the time thank you hey rob bradford here you guys know i'm always up for a good mvp story and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One seems like fantasy and was real. The others seem like fantasy and are fantasy. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Golden Shores Mermen. B, the Rainbow River Jackalopes. C, the Magic Valley Cowboys. Pull a rabbit out of your hat and saddle up, buckaroo, because the correct answer is C, the Magic Valley Cowboys. Representing Idaho's Magic Valley out of the region's largest city, Twin Falls, off and on from 1952 to 1971. Playing in what else? The Pioneer League for 17 non-consecutive seasons, these Cowboys made plenty of history. Let's start with some notable names from Magic Valley's box of tricks. None other than seven-time MLB All-Star, two-time American League home run king, 1972 AL MVP, and 1964 National League Rookie of the Year Dick Allen had 21 homers for the Cowboys as a 19-year-old in 1961. The very next year, Allen's older brother Hank almost single-handedly spurred an otherwise lousy Cowboys team to a third-place finish, as Hank led the league with a 346 batting average and 140 RBIs, tied for the league league with 37 homers, and tied for the league league with 176 hits. Grady Little, who went on to a 22-year career managing pro ball, including six in MLB, put in his rookie year as a player with Magic Valley in 1968. Jerry Remy, who represented the Boston Red Sox in the 1978 All-Star Game and in the broadcast booth for 33 years, also broke into pro ball as a cowboy, batting 308 and stealing 16 bases in 32 games for Magic Valley in its final year, 71. But, Some of the Magic Valley stars proved practically invisible in terms of the majors. The 1955 team, affiliated with the Cubs, finished the regular season with an overall losing record in fourth place, but abracadabraed its way through the playoffs, 
yes, those Cowboys lassoed the league title, getting strong pitching from Bob Schaffer, whose entire four-season pro career was spent with Magic Valley, and solid hitting from largely forgotten Daniel Lobitz. That 55 team briefly had Bill Dickey, but not the Bill Dickey you're thinking of. And 1955 was when Magic Valley peaked. As far as league championships go, the rest of the Cowboys' history is filled with tumbleweeds. In 1972, the Pioneer League fielded just four teams, and the Miners have never since returned to Twin Falls. And that's how the Magic Valley Cowboys rode off into the sunset and disappeared. <laughs> now, on to the question for next time. Which of these colorful clubs winged its way through the Miners of yesteryear? A. The White Plains White Ibises B. The Red Springs Red Robins C. The Golden Golden Pheasants Want to know the answer? Go climb a tree. Or, tuning to the next, goes to the miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is trying to build a sandcastle, and he's about to kick the bucket. She kneels by my side Cradled by two loving arms that I'll die for One little kiss and Felina Goodbye Big thanks to Josh Jackson for stopping by for Ghosts of the Miners uh, this week. Josh took a couple of weeks um, between finishing that one and he texted me the other day and said, uh, I actually listened back to last week's episode and I don't remember which one is correct for this week. <laughs> so we had to do more <laughs> research and figure it out. Uh, but uh, before we get out of here, we have one topic that we have to discuss. And that is one of the most unique and incredible individual feats in, and this is really no exaggeration, the history of baseball. Now, granted, there are a lot of circumstances that have to come together, so it isn't just about one guy making it happen. His teammates obviously contributed, but one guy came through when the moment was there for him, and that guy is St. Louis Cardinals prospect Chandler Redmond, who on Wednesday, August 10th, became the second known player in professional baseball history to hit for the home run cycle. So he hit a solo shot, a two-run homer, a three-run homer, and a grand slam in the same game. He drove in 11 runs as he and his team, the uh, Springfield Cardinals, beat the Amarillo Sod Poodles 21-4. to uh, I feel like Hodgetown, by the way, is getting uh, – we're getting we're getting a little close to like oh this is old school like high desert Lancaster Bakersfield kind of stuff with that ballpark in Amarillo there is a lot of offense there um, but how about this day uh, for Chandler Redmond there is a terrific story that is up uh, on MLB Pipeline right now by our good buddy Rob Terranova uh, he got a chance to talk to Chandler last night uh, after the game and uh, this is probably the money quote uh, he said quote. So after I hit the grand slam, I had a little thought creep into my mind about maybe the cycle, but then I brushed it off real quick. I was like, come on, this is only my second time with a multi-homer game in pro ball. 
But then I go up there and hit the solo shot, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can do it. So then walking up for that last at bat and seeing two guys on, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, everything is lining up. You can do this. So just stay calm and stay within yourself. But if you get a chance to get a ball to hammer, you better not miss it. This kid was a 30-second round pick in 2019. He mashes the three-run homer. Uh, we were all set to write the story on him for just a three-homer game. Rob was already on track to do that. Then all of a sudden, not only does he hit a fourth, which is a rarity in itself, but the fourth homer is the one homer he's missing for the home run cycle, which had only been done, again, one time in minor league history that we know of. And granted, you know, as I posted last night, I said this in our, our Slack channel, there's a very good chance that, you know, in the Class D Tar Heel and Woodworkers Union League in 1934, somebody hit for the homer cycle, and we might not know about it. Um, I know there was a, a, a guy who I know on Twitter who found uh, a four-homer game from a player with the Amarillo Gold Sox in the Texas League in 1955 who hit four homers including a grand slam and didn't specify what the other homers were and he drove in 11 runs. So that's a possibility, but the only known player who has done it outside of this was a, a prospect named Tyrone Horn, who did it on July 27, 1998 for the then Cardinals affiliated double a Arkansas travelers. So the same league, the same level, 28 24 years apart 1998 was when he did it uh it's never been done in major league baseball just a ridiculous story i mean something that circumstances obviously have to come together in order to make that happen um so it is kind of quirky in that way but man what a to be able to have the opportunity for that moment and not miss it is pretty dang cool i mean it, it's another one of those moments where you're just like this is why i love minor league baseball right yeah. it's it's like there are so many games happening that anything is possible on any night. We've long said this. We've, we've worked in the industry long enough to experience it many times. And yet we haven't experienced this. At least I haven't, you know, I wasn't working in minor league baseball in 1998, Tyler, you weren't either. And to see this actually happen, it's always something Chandler Redmond said it himself. It's something that comes into the back of your mind. of like, Oh, wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't that be cool? And the fact that it happened perfectly, literally, like you said in that quote, like, Two men had to be on in that yeah. final at bat. Yeah, it's not as though he was going in missing the solo shot, and he, you know, he had to come through on his own. And yeah, and I especially love it too because the fact that it ended on the three-run homer means that he had to root for his teammates. Like, imagine if he needed the solo shot, it. he'd be like, "Guys, clear out!" Like, right. <laughs> If you need to make <laughs> just get thrown out on the bases, do something. Yeah, if you need to do a two plan, do a two plan. But I need everybody out of my way. For the final no it's like guys i need you on base to make this happen i'm sure it's not something he was saying but maybe it's something everybody was thinking too maybe that motivated them a little bit uh you mentioned amarillo is essentially the new lancaster i mean it it's incredible what's happening in that ballpark yeah just the the winds of that place uh, i think the elevation plays a role too uh a lot happening and, and you can get some funky scores in amarillo but still like this this didn't happen in lancaster it didn't happen in high desert. Yep. Um, it didn't happen in Bakersfield or, or some of those other Cal league ballparks that are really known as hitter friendly places. Reading is another really hitter friendly place over there in the Eastern league. So even in the most hitter friendly places, this is rare. It, it's as rare as it gets. Um, so full kudos to Redmond for, for pulling this off full kudos for, you know, to the Springfield Cardinals for giving him the opportunity to make this happen yeah. and, and filling up the bases at the appropriate times. It, it was really, really fun to follow on social media um, to see him get as excited as everybody else was is 
is huge. We'll see what's going to happen the rest of the way with, with Chandler Redmond as somebody who does the Cardinals list. He's on the periphery of the top 30. I wouldn't necessarily put him on there because he is old for, for double A, but that none of that matters. Like who cares? He, he could have been 32 years old in double A and this would still be really, really exciting and, and cool. So um, kudos to him and, and really glad we got to see it. And it's something I will remember for a very long time, as I'm sure everybody who t- was touched by that game much more directly will as well. I remember very vividly when I was a kid, just one time standing around uh, thinking to myself, you know, there's the cycle in baseball. I wonder if anybody has ever hit like a home run cycle, like a solo shot, a two run homer, a three run homer, a grand slam in the same game. And I remember thinking like, nah, it's probably never happened. That sounds insane. Uh, and that was probably just shortly before the one guy that we know of to do it actually did it. Tyrone Horn would have done it uh, when I was coming out of seventh grade that summer. And uh, one thing that I was very happy to learn and if you go read Rob's story at MLB Pipeline, he links to a story from 2006 at MILB.com in which uh, a reporter for the site back then actually caught up with Tyrone Horn about the accomplishment and all that. And I was thinking, I hope Tyrone Horn finds out about this. Like, I'm sure somehow he's going to learn. And this morning, sure enough, I logged into Twitter and he had liked my tweets about it from last night. Um, so that's very cool. His his Twitter handle is actually HRCycle98. Um, so, I mean, just how cool for, you know, for somebody like that to have his big moment be back in the in the conversation um we should also shout out there were uh, a few players who have done this uh, at other levels and in other um sports there was a high school player in ohio who did this uh back in 2019 there was a usa today story about it um back then there was also a softball player for the university of arkansas danielle gibson she did it in 2019 there was a softball player as well for uh georgetown who did it back in 2013 um, and there's just some really cool, you know, baseball lore and, uh, and the stuff that we love about it, um, in that story from last night. So very cool stuff. Congrats to Chandler Redmond and, uh, Rob Terranova. Fantastic story as always from, uh, from our buddy Rob. So before we get out of here, uh, let's give you a, a look at what we're watching on MILB.TV this week. Yeah. I don't know how many, uh, Brewers fans we have listening to the show. I hope it's plenty, but, um, you know, I think we're going to get a little Brewers heavy in our MILB.TV picks uh, for next week. I'm going to pick AAA Nashville. Uh, the, the Brewers pulled off a very interesting set of promotions uh, last week, sending Joey Weimer, Sal Freelich, and Garrett Mitchell all to AAA Nashville all at once. Those guys were sharing time in the outfield at Biloxi. Um, now they go to Nashville at the same time. Also, that was right around the trade deadline in which the Brewers had acquired Estery Ruiz from the San Diego Padres. Ruiz kind of on the border of being a major leaguer and a triple A player. They decided to send him to Nashville as well. I, I would love to see a race between him and Garrett Mitchell, two very speedy guys, Sal Freelich, no slouch himself, Joey Weimer pretty quick on his own right. So it's going to be fascinating to see how they balance that outfield situation over there in Nashville. It's a very good problem to have. Ruiz is probably the most major league ready of that bunch. Um, his speed has already played in the major leagues. There's some questions about the bat and I know his, uh, approach has certainly improved in 2022 leading to a breakout, but the uh, hard hit rate isn't exactly what you would want it to be. Freelix on the way up, but you know, this is his first full season. Weimer and Mitchell, it's their second full seasons. 
really cool to see that play. So pick any game next week. I believe they're playing Jacksonville. Um, just to see how that dynamic is going to work out. Somebody's probably going to have to DH. Only one guy can play center field. Um, they're probably going to rotate those guys through. It's just really, really fascinating. So uh, interesting group to watch there in Nashville, and you're going to want to check that out. That being said, nobody in that group is the best outfield prospect in the Milwaukee system. And Tyler, your pick involves just that player. It does. Uh, Jackson Chorio is now a member of the high A Wisconsin Timber Rattlers, and he has started very, very well there. 14 games in, a slash line of 283, 353, 450. Uh, he's got a couple of homers at the high A level already. Um, there is probably nobody in baseball with as much helium prospect-wise as Jackson Churio, uh, and you can watch him and his Wisconsin Timber Rattlers team. They will be on the road uh, at Cedar Rapids next week after a home series against South Bend this weekend, and you can catch all those games at MILB.TV. And also... Uh, you all have to watch Chandler Redmond every day now to see if he can do the homer cycle again for the rest of his career. You got to watch him. I mean, the beauty of the six game series is that we know he will be still in Amarillo this weekend. So we used to say it's not possible. Oh, man. Fun episode of the show before the show this week. Big thanks to, to Josh Jackson, to Kelsey Anigan, uh, to Benjamin Hill, and uh, Sam Dykstra as well. For all of them, my name is Tyler Mon. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. We'll be right back.